This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Good morning to Kyle. both of you. Hey, how's it going? How are the pugs? I get, I see the pictures of the pugs, but how, yes. how are they? Well, the Kyles are, the, the Kyles. <laughs> oh my gosh. I can't unsee a pug now when I look at you, Kyle. Uh, Stop the pugs, it. The pugs are living their best lives. They are, uh, you know, it's a little hot for them in the summer. They're not very heat tolerant, which is why mm-hmm. we bought them for Texas and the habitations. So they're currently uh, lounging in the kitchen where it's nice and cool. Yeah. Okay. Do you, um, when you post pictures of them sitting, it yes. looks to me like they're hurting themselves sitting. Is this true? <laughs> it looks like the most uncomfortable way to sit possible. And I'm just wondering, like, is, are their bodies designed to sit like that crazy way? Or yeah, are they I- are they hurting themselves the whole time? I just think gravity is just unkind to the pug and the pug is just constantly weighed down, not just by gravity, but just by the cares of the world. You know, the pugs are really worried about what's going on in the news. They're super (laughs) concerned about the spike in COVID cases. They have a lot on their minds. Yeah. Yeah. I bet they do. Well, they certainly look depressed if that's what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But here we are uh, on another episode, jumping into Romans 3, 1 through 20. And if you weren't depressed like a pug before this passage, you might be after this passage because this one, this is not a bright spot in the Romans letter. It's just, it gets bad before it gets better. And so we're going to jump into Romans 3, 1 through 20. And oh, I'm going to roll the imaginary dice and say, Jen, can you read Romans 3, 1 through 20? Yes. Thank you. Uh, Starting in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All right. Super fluffy today, guys. Yeah, just some just some lighthearted truths for us from the Apostle Paul. So, you know, Paul opens <laughs> up, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of him circumcision? Why, JT, why would Paul ask that rhetorical question at this point? Because he's a dispensationalist. 
Oh, oh stop it. No, I'm no, just kidding. Is this how it's going to be today? I had to get it, I had to get it out. It's all done. Okay. It's, all, it's all done now. I mean, ultimately, he's talking about, I mean, you could say he's talking about Jew and Gentile relations, but I think even more than that, what he's appealing to is the nature and character of God. Like, who is God? And what are his promises to his people and can they be trusted? I mean, ultimately, that's the rhetorical question he's asking in those first few verses is, is God, is their faithlessness going to reflect on God's ability to make and keep promises? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Paul is, he, he's asking this question because he's just told them, hey, yeah. be careful to not sit in judgment on one another because you're not better than each other. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. so comes out of, uh, it comes into chapter three and he's like, He's assuming the question they'll be asking at this point, right? He anticipates their objection and he begins to address it. And Paul does this through his letters, but in Romans in particular, it's really pronounced. He'll open up a lot of these sections with questions like this. Like you think about Romans 6, right? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's Mm -hmm. he's anticipating an objection. And Mm -hmm. that's what he's doing here in chapter 3. So what advantage did the Jews have? He says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles of God. What is that? Yeah, I mean, the simplest way to think about it is just the words of God. Like God spoke with and dealt directly with the people of Israel. I mean, at various points in their history, they heard audibly the voice of God, you know? And so if anyone had reason for faith, it was the children of Israel. They were given the law in explicit terms. And so therefore their disobedience of it is all the more evident. And that's one of the points that Paul is going to be making as he talks about their relationship to the law. But instead of using the law as a means for humility, they used it. And you could even argue in this instance that he's addressing them in, their temptation is always to use it to self-elevate by garnering Mm. favor instead of to be self-abased before the God who sent his son to fulfill it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit when we were dealing with chapter two, but I guess the the privilege that Israel has, the standing they have in the history of redemption is not meant to be lorded over the Gentiles. Yeah. It's meant to be a place of covenant confidence, mm-hmm. not of this kind of always trying to redraw the same boundaries they had right. at certain moments in their life with God. And yet they seem to be far more interested and continuing to be distinguished among Gentile Christians than they do being in the distinct covenant favor of God. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. I think Paul is trying to be honest here in a way. Like, I think Paul is looking at the history of redemption as a Jewish Christian synthesizer of Gentile thought. And he is saying, hey, listen, Israel did receive the words of God in a distinct way Mm -hmm. than other nations. And it is different than the relationship the Gentiles have. In many ways, the Gentiles have access to the oracles of God or the words of God by his mediation of them through his written word that he gave to his covenant people, Israel. And that's different. You know, that is a Mm -hmm. different kind of relationship. And I think Paul is trying to just be honest with the fact that, listen, Jewish Christians, you do have a unique place in the history of redemption, but maybe you're not using that the way that you should be. You're exactly right, Kyle. I agree with everything you said. And they're certainly lording it over the Gentiles, Mm -hmm. but it's almost like their proximity to God's saving purposes has also led to a sense of complacency in their own holiness. That it's 
like, because we have God's word and because we have spiritual legacy and tradition that isn't that of the Gentiles, it's led them to a complacency, which allows them to kind of rest on their laurels of quote unquote, doing the works of the law, which is supposed to distinguish them, but it's not actually resulting in faith, which is what Paul's yeah. going to lead us into next. It's not, it's not leading to a, a self-reliance or a trust in the Lord. It's actually leading to self-complacency. One of the ways that the commentary I'm using most closely in my sermon prep for here at Storyline and also for this is Cranfield's commentary. It's a bit older and a little technical, but he says, sometimes special position in God's redemptive purposes has also led to self-complacency. And for me, that just... Mm hit strong. Like, oh my goodness. Sometimes, and this is I think what Paul's going for here is our nearness to God doesn't always result in greater holiness. It can we can think that it means I have a dignified position in God's redemptive purposes, which therefore means I can be less reliant upon God and more reliant upon self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean what a dangerous place that is to be. Right. And Israel falls into that pit because in verse three, Paul brings them right there. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So Paul is commenting on kind of telling the story. That's exactly what happened with Israel. Mm -hmm. It was that kind of spiritual complacency that led to faithlessness. And he's asking again, he's assuming a question that maybe the Gentile Christians would be kind of asking at this point, which is like, hey, Israel had a moment and they were faithless. Or maybe the Jewish Christians are asking, well, we were faithless. Does that mean that God is also going to abandon his promises? Or does it nullify his covenant faithfulness? And Paul's saying, not at all. No, no, no. God remains faithful even when we are unfaithful. Mm-hmm. And when I was studying this to teach it, this felt to me a little bit like a whiplash. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if it, how it feels to you. Like, what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, to begin with, here it is. They receive the oracles of God. Then another series of questions that seem unrelated. Well, what if some of them were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. And I think more than anything, I I think you have to see this as Paul. I don't know that these objections are, or these questions are necessarily the same thing. I think he's just almost rattling off the kind of objections and questions that Jewish Mm -hmm. Christians might be raising or that the church in Rome might be asking in light of what he's just said in chapter two. Mm -hmm. right? Which is that like, hey, Israel was unfaithful. Well, does Mm -hmm. that mean that God isn't going to be faithful to them? No, he's going to be faithful, but his faithfulness, it may not look like what you thought it was going to look like. Mm -hmm. Right. It may not look like Israel exalted among the nations Right. right now. Well, and I think it's that sense of much given, much required, right? It still is special that you're the one who was given much. Like no one's trying to say that it isn't a special thing to know that you were given much in receiving the oracles of God, but much was required of you. And I think also the whole time I'm reading through this portion of Romans, I'm always thinking of James, where in chapter two, his discussion about not showing favoritism. Mm -hmm. And he talks about it, you know, as it relates to rich and poor. And I think he's, he's speaking in a very literal sense, probably in terms of the context in which that letter is written. But here we see a question about richness and poorness as they relate to the resources that God has given to those who are now called according to his name. And so the same thing is in play. It's like, hey, are we still looking to see who's the favorite child here? Mm-hmm. Uh, because we're, we're way past that. 
Yeah. But that is our impulse. That's that's the impulse that I think um, he's addressing in the letter. And it's an impulse that, that we uh, modern Christians can identify with. We've moved beyond conversations of, you know, who's a Jew and who's a Gentile, but there will always be perceived insiders and outsiders as it relates to our place in the church. And Paul is saying, we're not doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And in many ways, it's almost like Paul is pointing to the way that God engaged with the people of Israel in the midst of their faithlessness as a paradigm for how he's going to do that, both with Jewish Christians and with Gentile Christians. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons why the connect is here. You know, he goes on in verse five, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil the good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Again, you know, if you feel like this passage is difficult, Tom Schreiner in his commentary, which is fantastic, he calls this one of the most difficult passages in Romans. It, Romans 3, 1 through 8 doesn't get a lot of attention. I mean, arguably 9 through 20 mm-hmm. gets much more attention in this chapter. And that it could be in part because this passage right here, it feels like there's a lot here. <laughs> like it feels very dense and a little bit convoluted, if I'm being honest. But I do think the one thing that Paul is really trying to get us to see here is this. Righteousness and the righteousness of God is not merely God's perfect character. Righteousness is God's covenant fidelity, even in the faithlessness of Israel. Yeah. I'm curious. So one of the things I'm hoping we can do for our listeners as we go through some of these tricky passages in Romans or the whole tricky letter that is Romans is just help them follow the flow of the arguments. And we've hit on it some, but like if you were going to just summarize verses one through eight in a few sentences, just this, the force of what he's saying, how would you say it? Uh, God was faithful to reveal his words to Israel. He was faithful in the midst of Israel's unfaithfulness. And so he will continue to be faithful to all of those who place their faith in him, even when they're unfaithful. Okay. What would you say, JT? Yeah, I'm not sure I can top that. I mean, it's really good. I, I think if I was trying to help people like grasp onto one thing in particular, is what I tried to say at the beginning is all of Paul's appeals throughout Romans and including here in chapter three, verses one through eight is to the character of God and to his saving mm-hmm. purposes through his promises. And so any rhetorical question that he asks, he's asking based upon who do you think God is? That's not, good. Not what do you think his, not what do you think it means that you have his word or what do you think it means that you've been, you know, set apart as, as Jewish men and women, but rather who is God and what are his saving purposes in the world? And specifically Mm -hmm. then related here, it's you're no better off because you received the promises of God. It is faith in Yahweh that leads to him being able to demonstrate who he is to all nations. That's great. That's really good. I'll receive it. I don't have anything to add. I think you guys did great. Then I'm, then I'm done. I'm off the podcast now. Jen actually just complimented something I said. I quit. <laughs> I quit. Oh, man. But you're right, Kyle. This is a hard passage. I mean, even in studying for this, this is one of those passages where we're about to get into this like litany of quotes from the Psalms here in a second. Like the challenges don't really stop. I mean, it, it just is, it's a hard passage for us to consider. And this might just be a, a moment. I hope this gets another amen from Jen. Is it's really hard to understand a passage like this without understanding the story oh, yeah. of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that doesn't mean you have to be an Old Testament scholar for our friends who are maybe just beginning their journey 
journey into understanding scripture, but to understand what God was doing when he predestined, selected, and set apart for himself Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore the family of Israel. And that story is only going to continue as we get into future episodes in Romans chapter four is what does it mean that Abraham was justified, not by works of the law, but by faith. And so this is a great opportunity. One of my professors in, uh, in seminary used to say, I love the New Testament. It reminds me so much of the Old Testament. Uh, and he, of course, was an Old Testament professor. Is again, this isn't like Romans is pointing back to this mm-hmm. story of God's faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, mm-hmm. which, of course, we've covered in previous seasons. But it's just a chance for us to be reminded about what God was doing in the Old Testament as well. And that helps us understand what Paul is saying yeah, here. Yeah, that's good. Well, and he's addressing both Jew and Gentile in this letter, but you can tell he's focusing in on the Jews and holding, he's holding them to account in many ways. Like, He basically has said, yeah, you received the oracles of God. And then he's going to start, oh, quoting the oracles of God at them. You know, I mean, like basically this is what you have. So why are you questioning me when this has already been given to you? Which, I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty direct. Yeah, and verse nine is a rearticulation of what he's tried to make clear in chapters one and two already, which is, mm-hmm. are the Jews any better mm-hmm. off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews mm-hmm. and Greeks, are under sin. So, and again, I want to be clear. It, it can read, this passage can read like Paul is saying, the Jews are, have an advantage, they're better off. And then a moment later going, the Jews don't have an advantage, they're not better off. I, I think, <laughs> keep in mind, I think Paul is having, he's addressing vertical and horizontal realities for the Jewish Christians. And he's saying, uh-huh. listen, in the eyes of God, you and the Gentile Christians have the same problem and are in need of the same solution. Now, among yourselves and in the flow of history, mm-hmm. there is distinctiveness that should be honored and recognized. But here in this passage, he's saying, no, this is a problem for all of us. And he begins to list it off. And this is a passage that you'll hear often when we talk about the problem of sin. This passage gets brought up a lot when you're thinking about sin, wickedness, total depravity, just the inability we have to be righteous. Typically, this gets proof texted when somebody is trying to talk about the impact of sin on our lives because it's a lot of quotes to point out that the the problem is a big and bad problem, right? So the bad news here, where does it come from? He's quoting a bunch, but where is he quoting from? All these verses, why does it look different in my Bible when I look at it, Jen? Because you're supposed to go, huh, where'd that come from? And then when you start looking for where it came from, sometimes like in the case of what he's quoting here, you might get a little alarmed because you realize that it's actually a mashup of several different places, Mm -hmm. which could lead you to one of two conclusions. One is that Paul didn't really know his Old Testament very well. The other is that he knew it so well that he was fluent in pulling different pieces together to make a point. I would urge you to go with premise number two. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he definitely is moving quickly through a lot of passages here. It's almost like he's going Mm -hmm. extemporaneous and he's just like pulling so many different ones in. I can almost feel this from like the preacher voice when you feel like, okay, you're there in the moment and it's like bang, bang, bang. You're just grabbing Mm -hmm. them from the, the storage you've done, the memorization you've done. Paul's just like, Mm -hmm. boom, 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 boom. And it's all true and it all fits together. It it just may not all be from the same place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's um, pretty convicting, honestly, for a lot of us to ask, gosh, am I that fluent in, in being able to synthesize these different ideas into one cohesive thought? 
you could make the argument that people do this badly frequently, but here we get to see how Paul does it very, very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the the judgment, like the basically where it lands here is not good. I mean, just if we could just roll through these real quick. None is righteous. No, yeah. not one. No one understands. <laughs> no one seeks for God. Everybody's turned aside. Everyone's become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Then you get into this really like visceral imagery. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asps. What's an asp, JT? I have no idea. Sounds like a bug or something like that. Give me a break. It is actually a caterpillar, but it's a caterpillar that's named after a snake. Boom. Yeah. I don't like either of those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you guys, audience, if you don't know this, JT has a death fear of snakes. So. I've read my Bible, uh, Genesis 3. Find, find the storyline address and send him toy snakes. Please, please, please. <laughs> okay, if you want a war, bro, we can have a war. Uh, it says their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruined in misery. The way of peace they have not known. And then this last one, which I honestly feel like this one is like when he, it's almost like when he writes this one down or when he says this one, this one feels like the mic drop moment. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If you're familiar with the wisdom tradition, if you're familiar with the idea of fear of the Lord or fear of God, this one almost seems Mm -hmm. like that's almost the heaviest thing you could say to a Jewish audience is like, there is Mm -hmm. no fear of God before your eyes. That's an indictment. Yeah, absolutely. It's an accusation. Yep. Now, I think one one question that I ask, and I hear people ask me about this, they'll they'll say, is this true of us? Mm -hmm. Like, is it true of us? Is it true of Christians before salvation? Is it true of Christians after salvation? Is it true of just the Jewish Christians? Is it true of the Jewish and Gentile Christians? Is this time stamped? Is this Paul giving an indictment to just this group, this church in Rome? Or is he making uh, saying, hey, this is an indictment. This is all of our condition under the law or under sin. Yeah, I mean, if I, I think it's interesting that when you just kind of skim through it, it it reads like an expansion of Genesis chapter three, right? It's mm-hmm. got serpent things, it's got death things, it's got all and never, it's always and never uh, language. It's got all the superlatives are in there. This is the amplification of what happens in Genesis chapter three. It's the logical conclusion of what happens in Genesis chapter three. And because of the similarity of speech, I think what we're supposed to take from this is this is the human condition that that, that when God said, you will surely die, that's exactly what happened. And we all mm-hmm. became conformed to the image of the serpent instead of to the image of yeah. the son. Yeah, I think that's well said. This is all of our condition under sin apart from Christ. This is who we are by nature. And I think this is why this passage often gets brought up in discussion of a reformed doctrine of sin or total depravity or whatever, because Mm -hmm. it communicates both sides of the perspective of sin and its impact. You have both the, this is who you are by nature. You are unrighteous. No one is righteous or none is righteous. No, not Mm -hmm. one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. It's both uh, what it's, I think Sproul he may have been taking this from somebody else, but Sproul says total depravity is not just that we're unable to choose righteousness. It's that we're unwilling. So total depravity is that we are, it's an Mm -hmm. inability and an unwillingness to choose righteousness. And this, this passage is communicating. Yes. By nature under sin, we are unable and we are unwilling to choose righteousness. And the collateral of that condition is 
Our throat is an open grave. We use our tongues to deceive. Our mouth is full of curses and bitterness. We shed blood. We create ruin and misery. We disrupt peace. All of these problems emerge from that broken, unable, unwilling condition. It kind of reminds me, JT, of when we would talk about doctrine of sin in the Storylines Institute or in the Forge program or at the training program at TBC. When we talk about Augustine's passe non pecare, non passe. Can you do that again for me, brother? Yeah, so there's he's having a debate with a, a man named Pelagius, and he's and they're they're basically trying to figure out what is the human state. Are we able to not sin, or are we not able to not sin? And that really is the, the one of the greatest debates in the fourth century, where the church sides with Augustine and says we are living in a state that is non passe non peccari, which. You don't have to know what that means in the Latin, but I can tell you it means in English. It means you are not able to not sin. Yeah. And Pelagius disagreed. He said, no, 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 you're able to not sin. So if you're looking, like imagine that we're all looking at a whiteboard together. And if there was this, you know, linear line moving from Genesis chapter one and two forward, Pelagius would say at Genesis chapter three, there's really no functional difference of humanity before the fall to after the fall. And Augustine would say the exact opposite. After the fall, humanity is functionally changed. And one of the greatest points that Augustine is pointing to is exactly what Paul is saying right here, is that after the fall, every single human is born into sin and born into death. Therefore, every mouth should be stopped. You have no standing before God, regardless of what righteous deeds that you have. And the whole world is now going to hold account before God for the death that they now have participated in. But I, I want to make this feel real practical for people. As I was reading this this morning to kind of prepare, one of the things that I was reminded of is, is really what he's saying is, despite the fact that Jews, you claim to believe in God and Gentiles, whether you claim to believe in the Jewish God or other gods, you're living as functional atheists. Mm -hmm. If you believed that God is who he says he is, you would stop lying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you believed that God is who he says he is, you would stop shedding blood. If you believe that God is who he says he is, you would stop to see, and you can go back through this list of the Psalm of the, mm -hmm. of the quotes from the Psalms here. And it really, in my own heart, made me think, how often do I functionally live as an atheist? Mm -hmm. Do I make concessions for my own sin? Or do I say, well, because, you know, I'm a pastor, so it's, God loves me, therefore it's okay for me to, whatever. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to convince the Jews that they're doing themselves, is that despite the fact that you've had the, this nearness from God's covenantal faithfulness to you, you've used that for self-complacency in your own spiritual life, which is actually a demonstration of your depravity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that just, for me, just hit home. It was, okay, what in my life do I need to be aware of that I might be living with a functional atheism, whether it's in my parenting, my marriage, my pastorate, just my own personal life and holiness and walk before God where I need to remind myself, renew myself and experience the actual presence of Yahweh and his covenantal faithfulness to me despite my depravity, but not so that I could continue to walk in yeah. sin. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. 
The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up his anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of his immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. That concept of functional atheism had a profound impact on the way that I think about my choices and the way that I think about the character of God. It's one of the reasons that I've spent so much time trying to draw people into the study of the character of God. Mm -hmm. Um, That's how we live in the fear of the Lord is by first being oriented to his disclosure of himself. And I think, you know, the functional atheist accusation is leveled at them in verse 18 when he says there is no fear of God before their eyes. The functional atheist is the one who professes a fear of the Lord and then lives as if he has none, making excuses for himself because his actual reference point is human instead of divine. But yeah, exactly. But still is doing a lot of religious activities. Yes, yes. So Mm -hmm. so you even think of like the prophets speaking to to Israel, you know, I I don't care about your offerings anymore. Mm-hmm. Because you're not caring for the for the oppressed. I don't care that you're singing songs to me. I don't care about your sacrifices. You're not living holy lives. Mm-hmm. And so that's what demonstrates a functional atheism. We can think we're participating in the things that a religious person should be participating in when in actuality our lives demonstrate atheism. That's what Paul's whole point is here is look at the nature and character of God. You're going to see two things. You're going to see his righteousness and you're going to see your unrighteousness. And that's just a sobering thing. Yeah, it is. And I, and I think, and in, in JT, I, you can correct me if I'm misrepresenting you here. You're not saying that when we look at this passage, we should, as Christians, see ourselves as fundamentally unrighteous any longer, correct? You're just saying that when we— Absolutely right. not. When we look yep. at the righteousness of God, we become aware of all of the areas where we still have not conformed to the image of Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I think that's an important that's right. note because I, for as many times as I've heard this passage preached, I've heard it preached many times as if this is our present condition, even after we have entered into Christ. But Paul is really clear in mm-hmm. verse nine, these words are a description of life under sin. That's Mm-hmm. Life under sin is life apart from Christ. This is the life that is by mm-hmm. nature unrighteous. This is not a description of the fundamental standing before God that a Christian has in Jesus. 
I mean, if anything, Romans 4 and 5 is going to be two whole chapters given over to demonstrating how that exchange happens, how that change happens. But in this passage, we're getting a picture of, hey, now the remnants of that, they remain even in our justified lives, right? Uh, and that's that mm-hmm. functional atheism where we almost slip into living in that old man. It, it reminds me of mm-hmm. Paul's words in Romans 7 when Paul, talking about life in Christ, is saying, hey, I delight in the law of God and my innermost being, but I see another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my member, right? Like members. So it's like this idea of like, there is this battle that continues even after we are justified. But in this passage right here, I think one of the things that, and and I'm just trying to be sensitive. Maybe you, maybe somebody shared this podcast with you and they're studying the Bible with you, or you're listening to this. This could come across as really heavy handed, but I think we have to say it. This is a passage that focuses on the utter brokenness and wickedness of our lives apart from Christ, of what our, condition is apart from Jesus, apart from grace and under sin. And if you are someone who has not yet placed your faith in Jesus, this is a description of where you stand. And you may not like what it has to say, but it is a description to point out the exceeding sinfulness of our sin and to help us understand the desperation of our problem is that there is nothing that you can do on your own accord that's going to get you out of the full weight of this problem right here. It's not within your power. You do not have the the power, the potency, the potential to escape from this unrighteous standing under sin. You're going to need a divine power. You're going to need God to do something. And what Paul has already told you is that the good news is even in the midst of our uh, faithlessness, God is still faithful. Even in the midst of our faith, faithlessness, our disbelief, our unrighteousness, God is still righteous. Uh, and I think that's important that maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking, I don't know that I've ever trusted in Jesus. Well, apart from that, this is a condition of which we stand under just condemnation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't want to say I love that, Kyle, but I do want to say that's true, that's true, Kyle. And one thing that was striking to me when I was first studying just the doctrine of total depravity and in systematic theology, this falls under the heading of anthropology, which means mm-hmm. what does it mean to yeah. be a human? Mm-hmm. Or in, then can fall under the doctrine of hamartiology, which means what is the doctrine of mm-hmm. sin? Or mm-hmm. another way to think of it is if we're, if we're broadening the categories outside of Christian categories is everybody has to answer this mm-hmm. question. What's wrong with the world? Yep. Right. And how did it get there? And whether or not you profess to be a Christian or not, everybody's trying to figure out what's wrong with the world and they're trying to make it better or right through some kind of atonement or reconciliation process. Mm-hmm. And what makes Christianity a bit unique and what I think Paul's doing uniquely here in Romans is most world religions, theologies, philosophies, or ideologies say that the problem is outside of you and you are inherently good. And what you need to do is you need to happen to the yep. world, in a sense. You you need to be the one that that fixes things. And Christianity is saying something fundamentally different. Yep. We're, we're not saying that the problem is outside of you. We are saying that the problem is inside of you. And that should not lead to, and this is where you're going, Kyle, some kind of self-hatred yep. or some kind of mm-hmm. self-abasement, but rather self-need. You need something. And that's where we're going to go further in Romans is we need an alien righteousness, yep. something mm-hmm. outside of us to make us better. So again, if it leads you to desperation, it should not be desperation that has not been met. Mm-hmm. This is where the gospel becomes so beautiful for us is we are desperate in our sinful state, 
but Christ has is more than enough of a payment for the brokenness that is inside of us to make us right and to reconcile us with God. That's good. I love all of this. I think these are really important takeaways. I do want to bring us back around to the audience for the letter as we finish out this this section, because the audience for the letter is actually not unbelievers. Right. You know, it's it's those who are already in Christ. And so I think it's always good for us to ask, and this is actually one of my beefs with the way, this is actually not me taking a shot at you, uh, Kyle, when I say this. If I'm taking a shot at you, I'll make sure it's plain mm-hmm. and clear. Um, <laughs> but But that, in my experience uh, growing up in the church, I thought Romans was an evangelism tool. I I did not see that it was actually pointed at believers. And so I'm not saying that it isn't an evangelism tool, but I would be remiss if I viewed it first as that and second or not at all as something that was instructive for those who are in Christ. And so I guess my question would be, how do you guys see value as those who are in Christ on reflecting on our fallen state apart from Christ? How does that keep us in the fear of the Lord? Well, I mean, I think partly is that it reminds us of the great surprise and magnitude of grace. It becomes increasingly easier, just like we were talking about earlier with Israel, that as recipients of God's blessings and promises, it can be it become it can become increasingly easy to grow spiritually complacent, having received the great benefits of God's mm-hmm. covenant love and fidelity. It can be easy for us to begin to presume upon His kindness uh, and to presume upon mm-hmm. uh, to, to forget what our desperate condition apart from Christ was. And a passage like this, I'm sure for the Jew and Gentile Christians of the Church of Rome, and certainly for myself, as I reflect on it, is it's a sobering reminder that I was not entitled to the work of grace. I was not deserving of God's grace. I was I had not merited God's grace. I had no potential in me to gain what only God could provide. And yet I was in a radically desperate position. I think that's one of the reasons why so many songs are written about grace is because when you start to think about it in a passage like this, we often imagine the problem between us and God as a gap. It's a nice visual image to associate with it, but this passage is demonstrating that this gap is, if it's a gap, it's a canyon, it's a chasm for which the mind cannot grasp how big it was and how deep it was. It's it's unreachable in the farthest dreamings of our imagination. And so I think that does bend our hearts towards gratitude, thankfulness, praise, and adoration. Yeah, and I think our hearts are bent toward forgetfulness and minimization. Yeah. Um, you look at the history of the nation of Israel. They didn't just get liberated from Egypt. They wanted to forget Egypt as quickly as yeah. possible. And I, I think one of the ways you can read what Paul is saying here in summary would be, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of yeah. Egypt. Like you got to remember what it looked like to be dead, because if you don't, you're not going to continue to trust in me and, and walk uh, in freedom the way that I've designed yeah. you to. Yeah. I don't think I, I clearly maybe articulated the whiteboard thing we were doing with, with Augustine and Pelagius, but you just brought it back with this question, Jen, is what happens at the first tree Genesis chapter three determines mm-hmm. what happens at the second tree in the gospels, the cross mm-hmm. of Christ. That's good. 
whatever problem we have is the problem that God is going to come and solve. And if we're taking Pelagius's point, which is that, yep, you're, you're kind of a sinner, but it's not really your nature. It's really that you need a better option or a better model. Just choose God is what he's saying. He's saying you're neutral. Nothing changed to humanity or you fundamentally at the, at the tree of Adam and Eve. So basically what you need is, is Jesus to be an example for you to be a better person. And Augustine says, no, what's happened to you, and this goes to Kyle's point, is this infinite chasm between spiritual life and spiritual death. And what you are in need of is a resurrecting yeah. faith, a mm-hmm. faith that can bring you back from the dead. And so if this is, as you're, you're absolutely right, Jen, it's written to an audience of Christians. They're being reminded just how far the chasm mm-hmm. was and what God has done on their behalf. Yep, mm-hmm. That's good. It's good. Well, that's a good place for us to land the discussion today. In our next episode, we're going to chat with Dr. Michael Kruger about Romans 3, verses 18 through 31. If the next step in your service to Christ and His church is additional theological training, please register today to attend Southern Seminary's Preview Day on October 15th. For just $25, Southern will cover two nights of lodging as well as all your meals on Preview Day. You can reserve your spot by going to sbts.edu slash preview. Like I said, we'll chat with Dr. Kruger on the next episode. We also have some great episodes coming up with Jarvis Williams, Tom Schreiner, Courtney Doctor. And also, if you have not had a chance to check out our new podcast, the Family Discipleship Podcast, would strongly encourage you to go check it out. Some of the guests that are over there, I don't know, people like uh, Jen Wilkin, <laughs> JT English and Kyle Worley, Matt Chandler, Trillia Newbell, our friend Caroline Smiley, and of course, the great host, Adam Griffin and Cassie Bryant, Chelsea Griffin. It's a great show. Go check it out. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. Grace and peace.